Good morning. This morning I'm going to read to you from Philippians chapter 3, the first 14 verses, and we're going to look at a message entitled Finishing Our Race Well. Let's just pray. Father, we come before you with humility and open hearts and minds to receive from you whatever you would speak to us through this passage. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir us, challenge, provoke, strengthen and encourage us that each of us would finish our Christian lives well for your glory. Amen. Philippians 3, first 14 verses. This is Paul writing to the church at Philippi. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself has reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, <clears throat> I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind, and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now Paul is in prison as he's actually writing this letter. And so his immediate future was very unclear to him. Didn't know when he was going to get out, didn't really know what was going to happen to him whilst he was there. He's no idea what tomorrow may bring to him. And at the same time, he's facing opposition from the religious leaders around him in the area. You could say that Paul was very literally locked down. But we can be amazed if we read this whole letter. His attitude is something to be in awe of, for he was not downtrodden. He was not in despair, nor was he discouraged. 
He was actually full of joy, confident in his final destiny and at peace to trust all things to God. Remarkable. So I've got to ask, how did he stay so focused? How could he persevere with such joy? Where did he find his motivation in these difficult times? How could he press on with all his strength despite his difficult circumstances? Now you and I this morning are not in prison, but we are locked down, so to speak. And we face uncertainties like never before, really. Challenges, just we don't know what our tomorrow holds. But these are very unusual times. We have to ask our question, what can we learn from this lesson that helps us press on in our Christian lives? To help us to persevere and know peace in the midst of such uncertainty. Well, Paul describes living the Christian life as a race with a goal, a finishing line. And it's one that we all will have to run and indeed are running. It's not a gentle stroll around the park. Neither is it a quick 100 metre sprint, nor an occasional jog. It's a race. And it's a race that calls for our very best every day in order that we run it and run it well right to the very end. And how we run is fundamental to how we finish. Now we can all say what Paul said, not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal. The truth is, if you're listening to this this morning, then, hey, you haven't got there yet. You're still alive. We're still in that race. But can we say his next line? I press on toward the goal to win the prize. How am I running? How am I pressing on? Am I running to win, to gain the prize? Paul's purpose was clear. He wanted to finish his race, (coughs) excuse me, well. He wanted to finish his life well, having accomplished all that God had asked him to do and trusting God every step of that race until his very last breath here on earth. And he never lost sight of this despite the variable and different circumstances he found himself in. And I've got to say, can there be a greater desire in our hearts and our purpose other than to live our lives to the glory of God and to run our race well and finish it in faith, in confidence of the Lord, right until our last breath? I want to reach my finishing line, knowing that I was running right at the very end. Now, when will we finish our race? (laughs) Well, you won't be surprised to know that I really don't know. But hey, it could be tomorrow. 
It could be soon. It may be many months and many, many years ahead. But the ultimate statistic is this, that one in one will finish their race. We will all cross that finishing line. And what matters is how we finish. We look at other encouragements that Paul wrote about this race. In 1 Corinthians 9, he said, run your race in such a way as to get the prize. That's not competing with one another, but that's being completely committed to finishing well. To the church in Galatia who started believing false doctrine, he wrote this, he said, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? So it does seem that we can be taken off course in this race. And later he wrote to Timothy and said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Isn't this the epitaph we all desire? That when our day comes, that maybe we have a tombstone, it will say, he or she ran their race to the glory of God to the very end. But dear friends, there's no guarantee we're going to finish well. For Satan seeks to distract us and we can lose our sense of priorities when we let our circumstances overwhelm us or when sin tempts us away. And the danger is we can settle for so little when God has so much more for us. Now we will reach the end and we will enter heaven. If you've made Jesus Christ your Lord and Saviour, the issue of you entering into an eternal life with him thereafter is assured. So this message isn't about whether you earn your salvation. You've already got your salvation through your faith in Jesus Christ. But along the way, there is so much that is wanting to prevent us from finishing our race well, from living our life to the glory of God right to the very end. So what can we learn from Paul from this passage that helped him finish his race well, running right to the very end. Well, in verse seven, we read that Paul considered all he once held as valuable was rubbish compared to what he gained in Christ. Paul gave himself to know Jesus, to learn about him and to live in obedience to him. And consequently, Jesus was his greatest joy and delight. So much so that everything else was incomparable to what he had discovered in Jesus and continued to discover as he knew him more. Paul saw that his possessions, his status, his education, his wealth, his ethnicity, they're just incomparable. He had gained the greatest joy and that was the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever was to my profit, he said, 
I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul had taken up his cross and followed Jesus lock, stock and barrel. And that's the Christian message. Unfortunately, <clears throat> too often, we can see Jesus as a bit of an add-on, a bit like a, a scout badge <clears throat> or someone we just turn to when time gets tough. If that's our case, he won't be our greatest joy. And unless we see him as our greatest joy, beyond all the joys that the world offers us, and there are many, we won't run our race well. We'll be trying to carry this other stuff with us. And you know the result of that. The other stuff becomes our first love before him. Paul turned his gaze to Jesus and all else grew dim. I want to know Christ was his cry. In other words, he wanted to know more of his saviour day by day. He realised that knowing Jesus and growing in that knowledge was the best way for him to run his race well. Friends, we run our race well and we run it free of distractions, not by trying harder, but by gazing in a different direction. Ask yourself who or what has my most attention? What influences your life most? Difficulties, problems, trials, work, lockdown, uncertainty. Dear friends, like Paul, we need to avert our gaze. We need to look in a different direction to Christ. We need to cry, I want to know him. And then secondly, we see that Paul had learned <coughs> that his past did not hinder his future. In verse 13, he said, forgetting what is behind, he pressed on. Now, he's not erasing things from his memory. We can't do that. But he's making sure that nothing in his past hinders his present nor his future. How could he do this? Because as he grew in knowing Jesus, as he learned more about him and understood more of Jesus's goodness and grace, he was assured more and more through his faith that what Jesus said about his sins being forgiven and who he was was utterly true. He chose to believe the truth that God had spoken over him. Paul had persecuted the church. He said it earlier in the passage. He'd had believers martyred. He was totally anti the church and Christians. Yet God had forgiven him because of his faith in Jesus. And Paul knew that and chose to believe that. He moved on by believing God's word that told him he was forgiven. 
he chose to believe what Jesus had taught him about the grace of God. Grace that assures me God has forgiven me. He loves me and has accepted me as I am. Grace that teaches me that God cannot love me any more nor any less. And this grace was unmerited and undeserved. God's grace is that we receive everything up front at our moment of salvation with no strings attached. Some years ago, I used to be a buyer for B&Q. And so I was in negotiations uh, probably two to three times most days. And the tactic of our negotiations <coughs> was always to allow the person to bring something to the table, so to speak. But as a buyer, you always kept something hidden. You always kept it beneath the table. <coughs> Excuse me. So we would negotiate. And then towards the end, when the seller had given his best offer, I would then bring something out and say, well, what about if we bought twice the quantity we were talking about? Or what about if we put you in every shut store rather than just a few? Or what about if we advertise nationally your products? Or what about, what about? There was always something else, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> from under the table. And some Christians think that that's how God relates to them. That somehow they come into God's presence. They become a Christian and they've got nothing to bring to the table, which is absolutely true. <coughs> All we bring is our sin, our failures, our brokenness, our humanity. And our desire to be forgiven and put our trust in him. But the amazing thing is, in that moment when we become the Christian, a Christian, when we come into, let's say, the negotiating room with God, there is no negotiation. For we come in broken humility, <coughs> desiring to know his forgiveness for our sins, wanting to put our faith in him as our Lord and Saviour. And in return, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> In return, he puts everything up front. Complete forgiveness of our sin. Past, present, future. Complete acceptance. We're an heir, a child. We're loved unconditionally. Complete assurance that God is faithful to his promises. He will look after us. He will care for us and guide us. And complete inheritance that I am certain I have an eternity with him. God doesn't negotiate. He gives us everything up front. And this is how God motivates us to run our race well. This is how we can make sure our past does not hinder us. Because through his grace, through what he gives me, my only response to such unconditional love and grace is to give him my best. It's not because I owe him anything. If I owe him something, then grace isn't a gift. It's because he loves me so much. 
My natural response is to love him and to want to serve him. And it's this grace that motivated Paul and enabled Paul to make sure that his past didn't hinder him. The stupid, wicked things he'd done, they would not hinder his future because he put his assurance in this wonderful grace of God. To the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see, your past, my past, does not hinder us when we accept and believe all that God has done for us as the Bible reveals to us. And the danger is, if we prefer to doubt his word, if we prefer to put more faith in our feelings or be influenced by our circumstances, that's when our past begins to control us. Paul shook off all that entangled him, his guilt, his disappointment, his regrets, and he did it by choosing to believe what Jesus says about who he now is before God. This was how he could press on towards the goal and run his race to the end, making sure his past did not hinder him. You see, your past and my past does not have to hinder our future. And then thirdly, <clears throat> we also learn from Paul that keeping the finishing line in our sight is important. Straining towards what is ahead. We'll all finish our race. We'll all cross that line. But then what? Do I want to cross the line? and boast of my material possessions? Do I want to have accomplished a risk-free life? I never made myself vulnerable. Do I want to say, well, actually, I couldn't finish well because, well, I got hurt along the way and I had too many disappointments and it's always somebody else's fault. No. I'm sure, like me, you want to finish your race. You can run it to the end and hear Jesus say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's when we live without the end in view that we go off course or we slow to a snail's pace and we end up finishing poorly. When we see life here as all there is, as permanent and live like that, we forget where we're going. Yet we're citizens of a different kingdom. We're en route to an eternity with the person of Jesus Christ. So let me ask, how often does the certainty of your eternity affect the choices you make? In other words, are you living with the goal in sight? To hear Jesus say, well done. Paul considered everything incomparable 
to knowing Jesus and made knowing more of him his passion. Paul received and believed the amazing grace of God. His sins were forgiven. He was loved and accepted. And so his past would not hinder him. And Paul lived each day with his finishing line in sight. But, <clears throat> let me say this. A good start is no assurance of a good finish. In 1945, three men arrived on the evangelical scene in the US. Chuck Templeton, Bron Clifford, and Billy Graham. <clears throat> it was said of Chuck and Bron, they were the most gifted speakers of their generation. At 25 years old, Bron had set US attendance records greater than any preacher before him. All three arrived at the same time on the scene. And yet, within five years, Chuck had left the ministry to pursue a TV career in the pursuit of wealth and fame. Bron, at the age of 35, died an alcoholic. And Billy Graham, well, you know his story. He finished his race like Usain Bolt. You see, it's not about how well you start. But also, where you are today does not disqualify you from finishing well. Let me read you this story. <clears throat> David Flood was a Swede who committed his life to Jesus in his youth. He married a young woman named Svea, who shared his commitment to Christ. They felt called to serve the Lord in Africa and arrived on those distant shores in 1921. With all their hearts, they wanted to work among people who had never heard the gospel. As it turned out, the work was hard, the conditions horrible, and the people were hostile, hostile rather, and unresponsive. Their lives were constantly in danger. They had two children. Shortly after the second was born, <coughs> Svea, his wife, died. David, already consumed by doubts and discouraged by the lack of results, was devastated. All he had to show for his efforts was just one convert, one young boy. He'd sacrificed his wife and the best years of his life for what? For one kid? He'd been a fool for bringing Svea to this hostile and cruel situation. He was eaten by guilt and despair. <clears throat> and in, it was under that cloud of defeat and failure that he decided to leave Africa. He took his young son with him. He had to leave his infant daughter behind as she was too ill to travel. A missionary couple took her in. And when they subsequently died, she was passed on to another couple who later raised her in America. In the meantime, David, who was living in Sweden, turned his back on his faith. After a second marriage dissolved, he began living with a mistress. He thought little of the daughter whom he hadn't seen since infancy. His daughter Aggie, however, thought about him often. She'd learned about the work he and her mother had begun in Africa, and she desperately wanted to talk to him about it. 
Aggie later married and together with her husband lived in America, but with all her heart she wanted to find her father. <clears throat> Years later she was able to arrange a trip to Sweden and she found her 73-year-old bedridden father living in a shabby apartment littered with liquor bottles. She went to her father and told him she still loved him and God did too. And she told him about his one convert. The little boy had grown up to be a gifted leader and minister of the gospel. That one little boy eventually led thousands of others to Christ and helped to establish the Church of Jesus Christ in that section of Africa. Upon hearing what God had done, David threw himself on the mercy of God. He asked God to forgive his rebellion and wasted years, and God did. David didn't know that he had just six months to live at this time, but those six months were months of productivity and restoring broken relationships. After nearly 40 years of falling on his face, David Flood got up and finished his race. And believe it or not, he finished it well. Where you are today does not disqualify you from finishing well. <coughs> so, we need to train in order to finish well. <coughs> in the USA, Dr. Howard Hendricks surveyed 246 Christian leaders who had given up on their ministry and calling from God. And in his interviews with them, he found three common experiences in each. The first one was that none of them were accountable to anyone else for their lives. Secondly, that each of them had stopped having a regular personal time with God. And thirdly, each of them thought it would never happen to them. These were leaders who had a great start, but they did not finish well. But whether we're leaders or not, we're no different. We all need to start and finish our Christian life to the glory of God. And in doing so, we need to train ourselves well. <clears throat> Let me ask you, are you accountable to someone else for your life and your ministry? Have you another Christian that you encourage to speak into your life? Not that it happens occasionally, but we actively encourage, tell me what you see about me that is not to the glory of God so that I can change things. Do you share your weakness and temptations with others? Well, let me ask you this, how do you react when somebody points something out to you that you don't really want to hear? Are you accountable? Because the Christian life isn't a lonely walk. Of course, we have Jesus by his spirit walking alongside us, but the reason we're family is because we need one another. And often it's, the, it's our friends who see things that either we try and hide or don't even notice ourselves. Secondly, how important 
Is your regular time with Jesus? Do you make time to experience his presence? Do you allow him to speak to you through his word, your time, your prayer, and indeed through other people? You see, it's not about a duty, neither is it about quantity. It's about quality. The purpose of having personal time with Jesus isn't to clock up 60 minutes or 120 minutes. It's to encounter him, meet with him, share our hearts with him and listen to him. Perhaps if I put it this way, it will help. Do you believe that your present commitment to being in God's presence is sufficient to see you run your race well right to the finish line? And then thirdly, do you think it won't happen to me? Oh, I'll finish strong. Look at me. Nothing will dent my faith. I'll never fall. Honestly, I have met so many friends, been in so many churches and seen people weep in the presence of God, bring spiritual gift, raise their arms, witness to unbelievers. And years later, they are nowhere with God. Sin has crept in, pursuit of money, career, family, sex, all these have taken priorities over Jesus. And eventually, their life's race goes off course. Don't be like that. Don't say to yourself, it will never happen to me. That's pride. And pride will deceive you. And it will make you think you're somehow guaranteed to finish well. And it will stop you from training. Friends, we need to train well to finish well. I said earlier, our race is not a stroll in the park. Paul describes his race as straining, pressing on, taking hold. This is no easy journey. And we need to be aware that Satan lies in wait to ambush us, to take us off course. So we may think we're running, but actually we're not running the race that Jesus set out for us. Our race is to submit our lives to his priorities. Some years ago, BQ sacked me for being a Christian, believe it or not. There wasn't religious discrimination in those days. We had a new director and he didn't like the idea. And I ended up working for a company, a smoke alarm company in Cheltenham on a part-time basis. It was all around the same time God had called Laurie and I to plant our first church in Dorchester. And so I was doing this consultancy for three days a week in Cheltenham, driving back and meeting with our friends, our small half dozen friends in Dorchester. One day, the director, the managing director of the smoke alarm company came to me and said he'd like me to be his marketing director. And he's arranged for me to go down to a car showroom down the road. And he's spoken to them and given a budget for them to show me a few cars that I may be interested in. I went down and the first thing that they showed me was this beautiful soft top Saab. I think it was a 99, I suspect the model isn't there now, but it was leather, it was gorgeous. And my first thoughts were, 
I'm going to drive this to B&Q's car park and park it in the visitor space and let all those people see me and say, wow, he's done well for himself. And I was sitting there in the seat thinking this through. I heard, and I mean heard, the audible voice of God say to me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I started an argument with God saying, well, hey, it's okay. I can do this job for three days and then, you know, I, I can plant the church, you know, as, at the same time. It'll be fine. But you know when God says something to you? You just know, don't you? No. That wouldn't have been putting his priorities first. That would have compromised the very thing we knew. I knew that God had told us to do. You see, giving God my second best would never have seen me finish, it, finish my race well. It's not complicated to know the priorities God has for us. He tells us clearly, Jesus teaches us to love him with all we have, in obedience and worship, to grow in our faith and trust of him day by day. To love one another in sacrifice, preferring others before ourselves. This isn't a theology, it's a lifestyle. And to live our lives as a witness of Jesus. To shine by the way we live and behave. To love others and to share the good news of Jesus with them. Friends, everything else is secondary. It's not worthless, but it's not our priority. So as I draw to a close, let's remind ourselves how we can run our race in order to finish it well. Is Jesus our first love? How much do I want to know him as Paul cried? How do I view my earthly achievements, my reputation, my possessions, my family, my career? Are they really rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus? Secondly, don't let your past hinder your future. How could the Apostle Paul forget what was all behind him? And not let it affect him. Because he chose to believe in the grace that God had given him. That he was forgiven. That he was loved, accepted and secure in his eternity. He knew that every time he fell. It was just about getting up again. Let me read you this beautiful poem the author of whom is unknown. It's called The Race. <coughs> Defeat. He lay there silently, a tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out. Why try? The will to rise had disappeared. All hope had fled away. So far behind, so error prone. Closer all the way. I've lost, so what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. 
Get up, an echo sounded low. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and win the race. With borrowed will, get up, it said. You haven't lost at all. For winning is not more than this, to rise each time you fall. So up he rose to win once more, and with a new commit, he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been. Still, he gave it all he had, and ran as though to win. Three times he'd fallen stumbling, three times he rose again, too far behind to hope to win, but he still ran to the end. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed first place, head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line, last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last, with head bowed low, unproud, you would have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. And now, when things seem dark and hard and difficult to face. The memory of that little boy helps me in my race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all. And all we have to do to win is rise each time we fall. Quit, give up, you're beaten, they shout in my face. But another voice within me says, get up and win that race. Dear friends, your past does not have to hinder you, nor does your present. It doesn't matter where you are today, you can get up and win your race. Paul also set his eyes upon the finishing line. He wanted to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Consider him in your decisions. Have a phrase in your mind, in light of eternity. What does this really matter? What is this really worth? But let me, just as I close, ask this. What if you're watching today and you don't know Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Saviour? Maybe you know of him or you've got some church background, but actually... I'm talking about somebody you don't really know personally. May I ask you, what's the purpose of your life? To be happy and healthy? To live to your standards? Hey, they're, they're not bad motives if you don't know Jesus. But dear friends, the Bible teaches me that you have a problem. Because you will also one day finish your race. And whether you believe in him or not, you will meet Jesus Christ. And he's not interested in your good deeds, your reputation, your achievements, your being better than somebody else. 
he will ask you one question. Did you ever receive me as your personal Lord and Saviour? Did you ever put your trust and faith in me for your life? A decision that changes you from the moment it's received in heaven, when God himself enters your heart by the Holy Spirit, and is what we say is when you're born again. That can happen for you today. And then the race of your life will change track. And it's now a journey of faith instead of one of self-reliance. And the goal is an eternity with him rather than apart from him. Remember, the Christian life is not about how you started, nor is it dependent on where you are today. It's about how we finish and finishing well. And to finish well, we need to train well and get up each time we fall. May God bless you.